Well, I'm sure that many of you have heard probably literally over a hundred messages on Jesus Christ, on His life, on His teachings. You could probably just name many of those messages that you remember. But have you ever heard a message about His childhood? Have you ever thought much about what it would have been like to grow up with Jesus? Has that thought ever entered your mind? What would it be like if you actually grew up Let's say you went to school with him as a little kid, or you're on the playground. What would that have been like to be on the playground with Jesus? And they're picking teams for dodgeball. It's like, uh, I'll take God. You know, <laughs> I mean, what, what would that? What would? What was that whole experience like to grow up with Jesus Christ? So what we're going to talk about uh, this morning, and uh, the reason why there's not a lot spoken about his childhood, or you don't hear a lot of messages about it, is because there's not a lot written about what Christ was like as a child. In fact, these 13 verses that we're looking at today, that pretty much summarizes his life from age 1 to age 30, and that's all we have. Okay, are these 13 verses. The rest of Luke, the rest of the 22 chapters, are devoted to the last three and a half years of his life. But these next 13 verses is all we have about the first 30. And that's why we, we typically don't speak about it a whole lot. But, um, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. When I, when I uh, began to study this this week, I had no idea that this passage would really have an effect on my life. Um, but as I began to study this and understand his childhood, it's amazing what an impact it had on the way that I prayed this week. Just the way I thought about God. And it even had an impact on the way I live my life just by understanding the childhood of Jesus Christ. That may seem weird to you, but as we go through, hopefully you'll understand and hopefully it has the same impact on you. Because to understand Jesus, we have got to understand some things about how he grew up. And by understanding, it also gives us incredible insight into who God is. It gives us a bigger picture of this God that we worship. Remember last week, we, we left it off with, uh, with Joseph and Mary. You know, Mary had just given birth to Jesus, and they place him on the manger, and then uh, the shepherds come, and then they go and dedicate him at the temple. And that's where Simeon sees, uh, you know, the baby and holds the baby in his arms and says, wow, this is the child I've been waiting my whole life to see. And then Anna comes and prophesies. Well, after that, it, it explains in Matthew 2 that that's when uh, the wise men also come. You know, the wise men come later on. And, uh, and they warn Joseph and Mary about Herod, who's trying to kill all the babies. So they flee to Egypt, come back. And that's where we pick up the narrative now in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 39. The first two verses there in thirty nine forty say this. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. See those two verses? That's all we have written about the first 12 years of Jesus' life. And yet there's some significant things in there. Just, just uh, you know, in, in verse 40, when it says, the child grew and became strong. Key word there is the word grew. It talks about Jesus as an infant, and here he is, you know, growing up, and it says that he grew. He grew in his stature. He, you know, he got bigger like any kid would. He became stronger. But it also talks about him growing intellectually, saying that he was filled with wisdom 
And wisdom has to do with intellect and has to do with emotion. And the reason why this is so important, the fact that he grew, was we've got to get out of our minds this idea that Jesus did not go through what we went through. The Bible says that Jesus emptied himself. When he left heaven, he emptied himself and he took the form of a man. He humbled himself. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself and he became a man. But not only did he become a man, first he became a baby. We've got to remember that that he had to empty himself and he had to learn. He had to grow just like you and I grow. Okay, the narrative does not say that, you know, that Jesus was born, they placed him in the manger and he looked up and said, Hello, Mary. Hello, Joseph, shepherds. You know, it's it's not like this. It's not like Jesus was born into this earth with perfect knowledge. See, that's, that's, a, that's an incredible thought of God emptying himself and becoming a human being like that, becoming an infant and learning. And it's not, that, it's not that he was faking it either. It's not like he crawled around going goo goo gaga, but in his head's going, I already know everything. <laughs> no, he grew up and went through the same limitations that we have. That's the whole idea of this incarnation is that God would subject himself to human standards, to human limitations. Jesus, Jesus grew. And I think that, uh, you know, sometimes as Christians, we end up defending the deity of Jesus Christ. How, oh, yeah, he's God. He's God. He's God. He's the son of God. And you read through the book of John. Oh, yeah, he's absolutely the son of God. But sometimes we forget that Jesus was also somehow 100% man. At the same time. That's a mystery. We don't totally understand that. But while he did not let go of his deity and he was still God, he somehow lowered himself and emptied himself and became human. And became a man. And that's why, while John always speaks about him being the son of God, Luke often speaks of him as the son of man and talks about his humanity. That he subjected himself to the same things that we do. And really... As you look at those two verses, that's it for the first 12 years of his life. That's all it's written. Now, why? Why is so little written about the life of Jesus as a child? The answer to that is because his childhood was very normal. Okay? If he, he had been doing a ton of miracles as a little child, we would have read about those. But his childhood was very normal. He grew just like every other kid did. He grew in his intellect, his knowledge, his stature, his strength. He was subject to everything we are. Now, you, you remember when, uh, when, when Jesus grows up and he goes back to his hometown and he takes the claim that he is the Messiah now? And remember how people respond when he goes back to his hometown as an adult and, and, and claims to be the Messiah? They all look at him and they go, wait, wait a second, you're Joseph and Mary's kid. Remember that? Aren't you Joseph's son? We know you. You're, you're, you grew up with my kids. We know exactly who you are. And they're kind of shocked and amazed and in some ways disgusted that he would claim to be the Messiah. Why? Because his childhood was so normal. That's how we know. Okay, he lived a normal life. Because when he went back to his hometown and he calls himself the Messiah, people are shocked by that. If he had grown up doing miracles his whole life, then when he went back to his hometown and said, I'm the Messiah, everyone looked at him going, yeah, we know, that's the kid that used to fly to school. You know, that, we, we know, of course you're the Messiah. You know, but when he goes back to his hometown, it's, it's like, wait, no, 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 you're Joseph and Mary's child. And so Jesus, here he is growing. You know, what, what would have been um, unique about Christ 
would have been his sinlessness. The fact that Jesus Christ was born without a sin nature, without sin in his life, and that he lived his whole life without sinning. And yet, I, I don't know that that's something that would be apparent to everyone. You know, just, just like you, you see other people's kids and with what contact you have with them, sometimes you think, man, their kids are perfect, you know, compared to my own, you know. And, and you, you look at other people's kids, it's the same idea here. Yeah, Jesus lived this sinless life. But other than that, there wouldn't have been that much to separate him from the rest of the kids. So you read on in verse 41, it talks about when he's 12 years old. It says, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. Okay, feast of Passover took, took place every year. But Jesus was never allowed into the temple area where they actually would, would uh, sacrifice the sheep. When he turns 12, that's the first time the child is allowed into that area of the temple with his father. Before, he probably went with them, but he was only allowed into the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, or the court of the women. But he was never allowed to go into that inner court where you would actually watch the Passover lambs being slain. Now that he was 12 years old, it was that rite of passage from going from being a boy to a man. And now he's allowed to go with Joseph and watch the Passover. It's a lot like you know the, the Jewish kids today. Many of them get bar mitzvahed when they're 12 or 13 years old. It's the same idea of this rite of passage. You're passing from boyhood to manhood now. And here Jesus is. It would have been the first time that he actually got to go in the temple and watch the Passover sacrifice. Now understand what the ceremony was like. The family would take, each family would take a, a sheep, a lamb. It's an unblemished, perfect lamb. And they would bring it there to the temple area. And you've got to understand this. It's, it's a... The idea is you would place your hands upon this lamb that you brought. And, and it's not just laying your hands upon this lamb, but it's, all, it's like leaning against it. The whole idea of the weight, the way your weight's being supported by this lamb. It's, it's you're, you're placing your sins upon this, this little lamb. And as you're doing that, what the priest would do is he would come by and he would slit the throat of the lamb. And then you would fall on top of this lifeless being. Now, here's, this is like your pet. This is, this is a, an animal that you have cherished, you have loved, and now you experience placing your weight and the weight of your sin upon this sheep uh, uh, to have someone slit its throat and have it die for your sins, in a sense, and have his blood shed for you because he is dying for your sins. Now, imagine being 12 years old and watching and experiencing this. And after the lamb was, was slain, they would take the blood and put it in this pan like this, this thing called a censer. And, uh, and the priest would pass it down this almost like an assembly line to the priest who was standing by the altar. And he would pour the blood upon the altar. Now, it's not like they would sacrifice one lamb. On Passover day, there would be literally thousands and thousands of sheep slaughtered in that one day. So this was like an assembly line. These priests are just passing, you know, these, these pans full of blood and dashing against the altar. They would say it would be like a stream of blood that would flow out of that altar all day long, all the way down the temple, all the way down the hillside into the brook Kidron. And, and, it, and uh, historians say that, that that river would glow 
this reddish glow for weeks just from the blood of that one day and of all these lambs that are slaughtered. See, sometimes we think of that sacrifice, we think, oh, one little lamb, nice, neat package. No, it was disgusting. It was a repulsive sight. Can you imagine as, as, as a young man looking in that room and seeing just sheep everywhere being slaughtered and just blood splattered against this altar and all just rushing down and the stench, the sound, just the noise in that place. And what you would see, it was horrifying. And there's a reason why it was so disgusting. It's because a holy God wanted us to see the ugliness of our sin. To see that this is the demand of a holy God. This is how much He hates the sin in our lives. That all these innocent animals would be sacrificed to pay for our sin. And imagine Jesus being there in that temple. And with His knowledge of of the Old Testament Scriptures, He must have realized at this point that this was a picture of Him. This is what Jesus came to do. He was going to be that Passover lamb. He was going to be that sacrifice whose blood was going to be shed for the rest of the world. And here he is experiencing it in that atmosphere. It goes on in verse 43, and it says, After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. That's kind of an interesting story. The feast is over and they start heading home. And it wasn't until a day later that mom and dad realized, where's Jesus? Okay, that seems pretty careless, doesn't it? You know, at first glance, you go, wow, that seems pretty careless. Because this is a trip. This isn't, this isn't like, oh, I left them in Sunday school and went out to lunch and realized. Oh. You know, this, is, this would be like if you went down to San Diego and said, yeah, we took our kids to SeaWorld, you know, had a great vacation, and then we headed home, got home, and thought, we left Jimmy, you know. <laughs> and, you, and you, you know, it's, it's, this is a big trip. I mean, you're talking about a day later, and so the first thing you read is you go, wait a second, they left him there and didn't realize till a day later how careless. But I want you to think about something. Jesus was a sinless child. He was perfectly obedient to his parents his whole life. Now imagine having a perfectly obedient child. Keyword, imagine. Imagine (laughs) having a perfectly obedient child. For 12 years has done nothing wrong, ever. Perfectly obedient you wouldn't worry about that kid a whole lot. You know, you just always assume, he's fine. He's never done anything wrong his whole life. So so here they are traveling. You've got to understand how they travel, too. That'll help you understand this. They would travel in packs of probably two to 300 people on this journey. And what would happen is the men would go first, and then the women would, would come behind. And so you've got this big group of people. You've got the men up here. The women are, are, are behind. And they travel for a day. They finally get to the destination of where they're going to stop that night. You know, the men get there. The women come, I don't know, an hour later or so. And you know, they're talking. And they, they get up. <laughs> Just kidding. They, they, get, they get there. And they gather all together there that night. 
And Joseph looks at Mary and goes, hey, where's Jesus? And Mary goes, I thought you had him. I mean, you can understand, you know, as they're traveling separately, Joseph's thinking, perfect kid, he's with Mary. You just don't worry about that. Same with Mary. She's thinking, oh, he's 12, perfect kid. He probably wanted to be with his dad this time. So he's walking with the men. But they get together and realize, we lost the Messiah. Okay? <laughs> we, what are we going to do, you know? And it's, it's nighttime. It's nighttime. And so they're thinking, okay, well, we can't travel at night. So basically, they wait till the next morning. They travel back. Now, the narrative says in in verse 46, it says, After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Okay, so it took them three days. Now, when when you read this, don't think that they got to Jerusalem and looked around for three days and finally found him. The idea here is that three days includes that whole time. Okay, that, that he was separated from his parents. The idea is they traveled for a day. It took a day to travel back. And then the next morning is probably when they found Jesus there in the temple. And that would be considered three days because any portion of a day counts as a whole day. That's just the way they, they, uh, they spoke back then. Um, it, it's, it's similar to uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection. You know how he was crucified on Friday and then Saturday and then Sunday he rose again and they would say after three days. Again, same, same situation here. They find Jesus, and he's at the temple, and it says that he's... And, and this is where the rabbis would typically be teaching. A rabbi would be standing, his, his, his disciples or followers would be there at his feet, and he would ask them questions. That's, that's the way they would teach. They would ask questions in such a way that the students would understand and figure out for themselves. It was their method of teaching. So here, when it says that Jesus was asking questions to these teachers or to these rabbis, the idea is Jesus himself, in some way, was instructing these rabbis while he was at the same time listening to them. And it says that everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, you've got to think... Jesus, again, what separated him was his sinlessness. What would a mind be like if there were no effects of our fallen nature, of our sinfulness? You can imagine how sharp our minds would be. I mean, a perfectly disciplined mind, undistracted by sin. So Jesus, his mind must have been so sharp, so quick, that here he is before these rabbis, the teachers of the day, and they are amazed by the things that are coming out of his mouth, the questions that he's asking them, the answers that he's giving them. It goes on in verse 48, and it says, When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Okay, so so Joseph and Mary find him at the temple, and they're going, Jesus, why, why would you do this? We've been looking everywhere for you. And Jesus responds, he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? So in no way was he disobeying them. He's saying, you should have known that I was supposed to be here in my true father's house, the temple. And we don't understand exactly what, what that's all about. That 
there's a theory that uh, he was so intrigued by everything that took place there in, in the Passover ceremony that he just, that was his time. He wanted to learn more. He wanted to teach about it. He just was so overwhelmed by that whole experience that there he went straight to the temple. And here he was 12 years old thinking, okay, I'm no longer a boy. I'm a man now. And so now it's time to get, get, get out, go about uh, my business of being the Messiah. And so he goes to the temple and starts claiming his Messiahship or, or teaching the rabbis. And yet what happens is Joseph and Mary find him and there's just this confusion of, what do you mean you're supposed to be here? And Well, it ends up, what happens is Jesus goes home with his mom and dad. You, you read in verse 51, it says, Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. So Mary's looking on and going, wow, what was that all about? My son is teaching there at the temple. And he left and said he had to be at his father's house. And she just stores these things up in her heart. But meanwhile, it says that Jesus goes back to Nazareth with them and is obedient to them. Basically, what a kid would do at age 12 is he would work with his father. Now, Joseph was a carpenter. And that's where we get this idea that Jesus was a carpenter working in the trade with his father. And it says that he was obedient to him. He was under his supervision. Now, understand, this is all we have of his life from age 12 to 30. The only other thing we have written about Jesus from age 12 to 30 is verse 52. When it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So again, he's growing again. See, going through the same process that you and I would go through. It's not like, you know, during those early ages, God just imputed all the wisdom in the world into his head. It says, no, he's still growing in his wisdom. He's still growing in his stature. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that phrase that he grew in favor with God. What do you think that means? Jesus grew in favor with God. Does that mean that God didn't like him that much at first and he kind of grew, you know, he, he kind of grew on him? No, of course not. So, so what does it mean that Jesus grew in favor with God? The idea is the pleasure of God. It's this picture of God just being so pleased as he watches the growth of his son and how he develops. It's not that God's surprised by this. Don't get me wrong. It's not like God in heaven's going, ooh, I hope he doesn't sin today. It's not like that. God knew. He knew everything. Nothing surprises God. And yet, at the same time, that doesn't mean that as he experiences it, that he feels nothing. You've got to understand this. Okay, this is a mistake I made much of my life. A lot of times, when I think of God... I think of him as emotionless. Like he's just this holy, all-powerful machine. That nothing I could do would ever phase him in the tiniest bit. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. He can't feel anything. And yet that is not what Scripture teaches. When you read the Bible, it talks about God delighting it talks about God being angry. It talks about God being grieved. It talks about the emotions of God. And I believe as we, we, we talk about how we are created in the image of God, 
We've got to understand that those emotions, some of the things that we feel in, a, in an even greater extent, are God's to begin with. So here God is, even though He knows what is happening, He can look at His Son and see as He lives His life, get a sense of pleasure from that. Experience pleasure watching His Son grow and grow in favor with God. You know, uh, I, I sometimes think of, um, you know, my children. Uh, i got a little two-year-old girl. Um, I don't talk about her a lot. I always talk about my older one because... The younger one, I just didn't really get into her for a while. But uh, I totally like her now. But, uh, you know, she, uh, you know, that first year, you got to go through all that. Uh, you Don't pretend you've loved them all the time. Okay. Um, you know, that first year, you know, it's just tough. And now we're, we're starting to bond. We're starting to have this relationship. And, you know, she's two. She's talking and this and that. And, and, uh, and it's been so cool. But at the same time, that little girl, you know, can just break my heart at two years old. You know, it's like, hey, come to daddy. I want to, you know, give me a hug. And she's like, no, I want to play with mom. And it's just like, even those little words, in her mind, she probably has no idea that her as a little two-year-old could have any effect on me. You know, just thinking, oh, he's dead. He's big. There's nothing like that. Even my six-year-old, I don't think she even understands by some of her statements, just thinking, you know what, it's dad. Come on, dad. That doesn't hurt you. That doesn't bother you. Because they look at you and just say, oh, you're the parents. You know, I don't hurt your feelings. You hurt mine. You know, when in the truth is, is, it's those little people that can absolutely hurt us or bring us the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure. And for, for many years, I think I looked at God probably the way my kids look at me and just think, come on, a holy, all-powerful God. I could do anything that would grieve Him. And yet we have to take the Bible Literally. And it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And that word grieve literally means to cause pain to someone else. Yes, that was an incredible truth this week, just to remind myself that the things I do can actually bring some sort of pleasure to God. And yet my actions can also bring some sort of grief to God. You know, we, we stress in Christianity this, this personal relationship with God. And it's not all just about fear and guilt, but it's about being so in love with this God that you say, I, I don't want to cause you grief. I want to bring you pleasure. It's the idea here. Jesus, living that perfect life as God the Father looks at his child, is filled with joy. It's filled with pleasure watching his son live this type of life. Jesus grows in favor with God and in favor with man. I believe growing in favor with man is, is just about the, his social skills, growing in relationships with other men. It is so important that we understand that Jesus went through things the same way that we do. <laughs> and I know that's a tough concept for some of you. It may be a new concept, but Jesus was 100% man, 100% human, experience what we experience. And the reason why this is so important is if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse uh, 14. This is why it is so important for you to grasp the humanity of Jesus Christ. That while He was 100% God, He was also 100% man. Because in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, when it's talking about Jesus, it says this. It says, Therefore, since we have 
a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Can you understand that? It's saying, since we have a great high priest. Now, what what the high priest did was you would speak to the high priest. He would basically speak on behalf of the people to God. But what Jesus explains is you don't need an earthly high priest. I am your high priest now. You speak directly to God through me. See, I'm not your priest. And the pastors here are not priests. Jesus Christ is the high priest. And it says that we have a high priest who is not unaware of our weaknesses. See, the reason why you have to understand that Jesus went through things as we did is because this passage is explaining that he's not oblivious to what you go through in life. See, don't think for a moment that it was easier for Jesus. You see, Jesus suffered. Jesus knew what it felt like to suffer pain. This is one of the things that I had wrong in my mind for most of my Christian life was when I would think of Jesus, I would think of him as some sort of superhuman person where, where when he was in the desert and he fasted for 40 days, I would look at that and go, well, he can do that because he's Jesus. No, he took the very form of a man. Just as Jesus fasted in the desert for 40 days, it would be just as hard for me to fast. It would be the exact same thing. Don't think it's easier, like, like, oh, you know, it was easy for him because he was God. No, he emptied himself and he took the form of a man and subjected himself to human limitations. Don't think for a moment, you know, like, like I did for much of my life, that when Jesus was being beaten and being whipped and they're tearing the flesh off of his body, you know, you read that and you go, well, yeah, but it probably didn't hurt him as bad because he was God. No, it would feel exactly the same way as if someone strapped you to a pole and started tearing the flesh off of your body. Don't think for a moment that when he had those those nails in his wrists and in his feet, that somehow it just didn't hurt as bad because he was God. What Jesus went through would be the exact same thing as if I were to take you right now, strap you to this cross, and begin nailing these spikes through your wrists, through your feet, and just watching you bleed to death and suffocate to death up there. The pain that you would feel is the same pain that Jesus felt. He was 100% human. He understands pain. And that's the beauty of that passage in Hebrews, is when we speak to God, we're speaking to someone who has experienced what we experience here on this earth. See, some of you come in this room and some of you are hurting. Some of you are going through things that I could never understand because I haven't been through it. I haven't been through as much pain as some of you have. And you could come into my office and try to explain it to me and I just would not get it. And yet what the Bible says is you have a God who has suffered more than you are suffering right now. And He understands that. 
And so you can come before the throne, before God, and say, God, no one understands this, but you do. You've experienced more pain. You know what it's like to suffer. And the Bible says, therefore, we can come before that throne with confidence. Have confidence that he knows what you're talking about. Some of you come in this room and and you're rejected. Maybe you've been betrayed, lied to. You have a high priest that understands rejection. Betrayal. Jesus watched one of his own disciples sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus watched one of his closest disciples deny him, deny even knowing him three times. Jesus watched while he was hanging on a cross in front of the people that he came to save, the ones that he loved. And as they nailed him to the cross, they're spitting on him and mocking him. And Jesus on that cross says, Father, forgive them. There's the ultimate in betrayal and rejection. Understand, those of you who felt rejected, been betrayed this week, Jesus understands exactly what you're going through. No one has been betrayed more. And here's the big one. It's for those who are struggling with temptation, which is all of us, who struggle with sin in our lives and the temptation, what that passage says in Hebrews was that we don't have a high priest who's unaware of our weaknesses, but it says that he himself was tempted in every way just as we are. Jesus understands temptation. He faced Satan himself, which probably no one in this room has done. He understands that temptation. And, and, and oftentimes we as Christians come up with excuses and say, well, you don't know how bad it is for me. There's no more excuses now. The Bible says you have a high priest who does know how bad it is for you. He does know how difficult it is. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to be tempted. He knows what it means to be rejected. And yet he came out sinless. And that should give us great confidence that he can help us persevere. But you've got to understand this truth about Christ. Jesus Christ did not come to save you from pain. Jesus Christ came to save you from sin. Becoming a Christian is not about living a pain-free life. Jesus did not live a pain-free life. What Christ can do is it says that he can give you the grace and the mercy to be victorious over your sin. That no matter how difficult it is, you have a high priest that understands the difficulty and says, I can get you through this. I'll give you the grace, the mercy that you need to get through without sinning. You know, I, uh, I, I think that we as a society sometimes, we look way too much to people with our problems. And we expect other people to solve our problems for us and talk us through them and help us. And there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is this, is we often neglect the great high priest who truly knows everything we're going through. And what I'd like to do is rather than right now opening it up for counseling or anything else, is I would like to just spend a couple minutes in silence where you yourself can speak to God directly. And hopefully you can pray differently today. That when you pray to God, you can say, God, you understand exactly what I'm going through right now. To share your pain, your rejection, your temptations, 
whatever it is you're going through right now, God is pleased when we bring those things to Him, directly to Him, through our high priest Jesus who knows everything about us. So would you just bow your heads and just take a couple minutes right now to just lift up all of your burdens to God. Father, we just close this service today thanking You for the sacrifice that You made to come down and truly become one of us and experience more pain than we've been through, more rejection and more temptation, and yet to make it through, Lord. I thank You that You understand every single thing in my life. And You do know exactly what I struggle with. And I thank you that you will give me the grace and the mercy as you'll give it to all of us. The grace and the mercy to make it through the situations we're in in life. Coming out of there glorifying you and being pleasing to you as Jesus was. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you suffered for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.